I'm Autumn Lockett. And this is Mitch Randall. And you're listening to Good Faith Weekly. Welcome to Good Faith Weekly. And on this episode, Autumn and I are going to catch up, talk a little bit about the rumble that might happen tonight in the presidential election, as well talk about a very serious issue going on in Nigeria. And then later on in the podcast, we're going to be interviewing senior pastor at Second Baptist Church in Little Rock, Arkansas, Dr. Preston Clegg. So stay tuned. It's going to be a good show. Autumn, how are you this week? We are only, get this, almost within a week of Election Day. Oh my gosh, I know. You know, my husband's birthday is November 2nd, and he wants nothing else for his birthday than a new president, and I'm just doing my darndest. (laughs) Well, I tell you what, not only are you doing your darndest, but uh, people all across the country are really engaged in this election season. It's really been incredible to see how many people are coming out for early voting, how many people are planning to mail in their vote. Um, and, you know, it, it, it does make one scratch their head, uh, seeing so many people having to stand in line for so long, as you know, you and I have talked about in previous episodes. Uh, but there's something, you know, that, that both it's inspiring to see so many people engaging in this particular election. Yeah, there is. Uh, we mailed in our vote, our ballots a couple of uh, days ago, and I got a message saying when I checked that they have been received. So that made me feel good. I don't have a cute sticker, so it doesn't quite feel official, but we just felt like that was probably safest for our family to vote by mail this year. Well, I'm so glad that you went down to the Baptist church and you dropped your ballots in that cardboard box and whoever received them now has officially verified you have voted. Yeah. It was nice to do a twofer. I did my ballot and my Lottie Moon Christmas offering all in one fell swoop. <laughs> oh, my I mean, God. That was a deep Baptist dive. Did you get that it? was a deep Baptist dive. For all of our non-Baptist listeners, uh, we apologize. <laughs> but, uh, well, I'm glad you, you and your hubs uh, did your uh, civic duty. And uh, my wife and I are planning on doing ours along with our two adult sons uh, in the next uh, couple of days. Uh, we've been really waiting to see, you know, if we may be convinced otherwise, but I think we're, we're pretty, pretty solid in, in who we're going to vote Good. for at this time. <laughs> so. I'm glad because I can put you in a headlock if you're <laughs> not quite convinced yet. <laughs> oh my goodness. Well, speaking of presidential elections, we've got uh, a, a little... I don't really want to call it a debate after the last presidential debate, but uh, we, we've got... Who knows what is going to happen tonight, uh, this thir- this Thursday, uh, as President Donald Trump and former Vice President Joe Biden square off for their final debate. And if you look at all the news uh, channels who are promoting it, it does look like a Monday night football kind of event as they are squaring <laughs> off. But there's going to be a little wrinkle in this debate, Autumn. And that is the moderator will have the power to shut off a microphone once the candidate time has elapsed. So what do you think is going to happen? You know, as someone who has spent um, her new career with Good Faith Media trying to get a word. It's a great idea. I'm sorry. I just cut off your mic. You didn't know it, but I just cut off your mic. As I was saying, I've been spending my life in good faith media trying to get a word in edgewise around preachers. Hey, hey, I resemble that remark. <laughs> I think it'll be good. I'm hoping that it will really keep the conversation 
moving in a forward motion. You, know, you and your guest on the Good Faith Forum today talked some about what you hope to get out of the, the debate and what you wish would come out of the debate. I think everyone has really low expectations, which is a great way to start anything in 2020. <laughs> That's right. Only thing, things can only go up, right, uh, at this point. But yeah, uh, f- f- you were mentioning uh, the Good Faith Forums that uh, on our Facebook page at Good Faith Media, as well as our uh, webpage, goodfaithmedia.org. But uh, this week's Faith Forum on Faith and Politics was really, really incredible. I uh, had some wonderful guests, Judge Wendell Griffith, Rabbi Sharon Brouse, and Professor William Blake just did an outstanding job talking about how faith and politics and what the real issues that we should be considering uh, during this election cycle. But one of the things we were talking about is how this non-debate, and the, it's the president's fault, and I'm not going to even pretend otherwise, his inability to, to have a civil conversation, to stay on track, uh, to talk about issues in a meaningful, constructive way. He just has no ability to do that whatsoever. He just throws a hand grenade and sees what happens. But because of his inability to do that, they've put in the, uh, the, the mic silencer, I guess <laughs> as we could call it, uh, into, into tonight's debate. Yeah, that's right. Uh, but what is really the issue here is that the American people suffer when their leaders cannot constructively debate these issues. These are real issues. Americans are facing real crises these days with COVID-19 blowing up, a surge underway in this country, some people facing economic ruin, social justice, racial justice, climate justice, uh, LGBTQ rights, uh, the Supreme Court, everything that's happening in this country right now needs to be discussed by serious people. And unfortunately, the President of the United States is not a serious person. No. Here's something the rabbi mentioned today during the Good Faith Forum was future casting and future planning. And when things feel hopeless and when things feel uh, like you're powerless, that you can still plan for the future and hope for the future. And the only way to do that, like you're talking about, is to really critically be able to discuss issues, even if you don't agree, but to be able to try to find that sort of, you know, light on the horizon so you can discuss it. Absolutely. And speaking of serious issues, uh, you know, America is not the only one that has problems. Um, The news broke uh, this week in Nigeria about uh, a special anti-robbery squad of police force called SARS and what they're doing among the Nigerians. And uh, really, in a lot of ways, mimics what we're seeing here in the United States with police brutality and uh, targeting certain people within Nigeria and it's just really, really been uh, difficult to watch, difficult to read about, and difficult to listen to as the press has descended now on Nigeria and telling their stories. Very similar to what's going on here. And what is, you know, what we're reminded about that this, this deep-seated uh, superiority complex that many people have here in this country is defined as white supremacy. Because, you know, white European culture established this and they did it so stealing the lands of indigenous people and then enslaving Africans, bringing them over for free labor 
as well as Asians, bringing them over for, for labor as well, cheap labor. And it was all based upon this white supremacy uh, mindset that they were superior to all others. Well, that's not only here, but it's in other places. There is this, this theology and ideology of supremacy, whether that's tribal supremacy, whether that is socioeconomic supremacy. It is though somehow, some way, I am better than other people, or my people are better than your people. And it's just really disheartening. It certainly is anti-gospel. Uh, Jesus never spoke about this uh, in, in that way. When he did speak about it, it was one of inclusion and equality and love and grace. And that is the way of Jesus, and it should be the way of people of good faith as well. So what have you been hearing about Nigeria? Yeah, I was listening some this morning um, on NPR, and in fact, my kiddos were next door, next door in the other room, watching Power Rangers, and my four-year-old came in, and, and he said, Mom, are you listening to Power Rangers? Because there was just this violence happening, and it didn't, like you like you said, it doesn't sound so different from what was happening, you know, all summer as George Floyd and Ahmaud Aubrey and Breonna Taylor, it's I really just feel like Nigeria sort of held up a mirror to us and was like, you know, you can't really see what's going on. Some some folks here can't see what's going on here, but you can cast judgment on what's happening in Nigeria. And so I just hope it's a wake-up call, really, um, for change and continued change. Yeah, and I, I do too. I, I mean, I really, really hope it's, it's more than just a wake-up call. I hope it is a call to action and that mm -hmm. people see the seriousness of the United States. And those people who felt like, you know, bringing in a president who was non-traditional, who really wanted to burn everything to the ground um, and, you know, cause chaos as he has done, you know, it, it, it demonstrates that the rest of the world is watching. And in many cases, uh, in many places where authoritarianism is ripe to prosper, that those countries and those leaders will look to the United States to mimic their actions, whether that is totalitarianism, authoritarianism, whether that is abuse and, and any kind of supremacy that we talked about a moment ago. They will look to the United States and say, hey, it's happening there. So don't you dare point a finger at us and talk about human rights issues or uh, egalitarian issues or equality issues. You know, Take care of your own house. And they've got a point. Uh, but the reality is we are in this together as a global community and we need to be working together and we need to be showing and demonstrating examples of how we should live and how we should get along and how we should stand up for justice in this world. Speaking of justice, we have an interview here in just a moment with Dr. Preston Clegg, senior pastor at Second Baptist Church in Little Rock, Arkansas. The church just released a very intriguing document about racial justice, really coming to copes with their past, good and bad, as well as really calling out not only their fellow Christians, but their fellow Arkansans to do something about this and have really tangible suggestions on the way they can address racial justice in Arkansas. So stay tuned as we talk to Dr. Clegg.
Welcome back to Good Faith Weekly, and on this episode, we've got a very special guest all the way from Little Rock, Arkansas. Preston Clegg is a senior pastor at Second Baptist Church, Little Rock, Arkansas. He joined Second Baptist as pastor in May of 2013. Both he and his wife, Rebecca, are native Arkansans growing up in the delta of eastern Arkansas. They have two sons, Paxton and Truett, who keep their parents laughing on the go and, you know, keep them in check as well. Preston has pastored churches in Arkansas, Texas, and Oklahoma before coming to Second Baptist. He received a B.A. in Christian ministry from Williams Baptist College in Walnut Ridge, Arkansas. Later, he earned both an MDiv and a Doctor of Ministry from George W. Truett Theological Seminary at Baylor University in Waco, Texas. Preston, welcome to Good Faith Weekly. Thanks for having me. I'm glad to be with you. Well, Preston, before we dive into uh, some really good content today, uh, we're going to ask you what we've been asking all of our guests since March, and how are you and your family doing during these days of pandemic? Uh, we're doing okay. Yeah, we have a saying around second uh, that we're COVID okay. Uh, I think the pandemic has relativized everything, of course, and none of us are living our normal lives, uh, but all things considered, we're doing well. Uh, our boys have been... Uh, learning from home the first nine weeks of school and just transitioned this week uh, to in-person learning. Uh, so we'll see how that goes. But uh, for now, we're doing well. Well, good. Well, I'm glad to, to hear that. And uh, is the church, are you guys back in the sanctuary yet? or No, we're live streaming worship uh, with minor exception. We also own a property in West Little Rock, mm. uh, Lake Nixon, and we we have worshiped out there I think four times, uh, once a month since July, uh, just an effort to get together. And because that's outside and we can distance a little better, uh, that makes more sense. But uh, we're not gathering in the sanctuary at this point. Yeah, there's something about gathering outside. Our church here in Norman is uh, gathering outside on Sunday mornings. Got a, a large uh, field in the back behind the church property. And it's been just really nice. I mean, we're keeping uh, keeping COVID protocol uh in every means, but just nice to see people and, and to worship together. And it's only about 30 minutes, but man, that 30 minutes is, is powerful. Yeah, absolutely. I've been reminded of how incarnational we really are as creatures. Uh, bodies matter, what we do with our bodies, our proximity matters, and sacred space matters too. And these are hard lessons in a pandemic because all of that is adapted, but uh, we're learning as we go for sure. Absolutely. Well, speaking of your church, um, Second Baptist Little Rock released a document called Convictions and Beliefs on Systemic Racism. Why did you and the church feel the need to release your document at this time? This statement really grows out of the heart and the core of who we are as a church, uh, and it's uh, propelled by our history as a congregation. Uh, Second has a long history of racial justice work in a city that's uh, often known internationally for racial injustice. Mm -hmm. And so we have tried throughout the history of our congregation to bear alternative witness uh, to how the gospel of Jesus compels us uh, to relate with people of other races, but also to seek uh, systems and societies that are just for all races. Uh, so, this document springs from our DNA uh, as a congregation. Uh, we were very active in the desegregation of Little Rock Central in the 50s. And just to live with our eyes open, 
this summer was to see some of the same sorts of injustices that created uh, those days in the 50s. And so we as leaders at Second felt like the time was right for us to speak into this moment. Uh, many of our ministries and missions are also related to racial justice, but we also feel like there is a time to speak and that this moment in our day needed a word from the church that as, as our society is gathering around the table to talk about what racial justice looks like, the church should not forsake that seat, our seat at the table. We have something distinct and powerful and beautiful to say in these days. So this statement grows out of who we have been as a church, but also who we feel compelled to be today and in the days and weeks and months to come. You know, in full disclosure, uh, you mentioned the history of Second Baptist and their work with racial justice uh, in the city of Little Rock for decades upon decades. Before the pandemic began, we were actually, uh, I want to say we, Good Faith Media, was actually in discussion with Second Baptist Little Rock, scheduling times to come over to Little Rock, because as soon as this pandemic breaks and we're able to travel again, we're going to be in Little Rock to record a new narrative podcast talking about the significance of Second Baptist Church Little Rock and the social justice advocacy that you've done in that city for so, so many decades. So uh, we're looking forward to that. You know, in the document, uh, it mentions, Preston, that the church learned from your black neighbors and that you're standing in solidarity with them. How exactly did you go about learning from those neighbors, and what does it mean to stand in solidarity with them? Yeah, great question. Um, for me personally, this began with a sabbatical that I had two years ago. Uh, Second gave me leave for 13 weeks, uh, and I received a grant uh, from the Lilly Foundation and centered my sabbatical study on uh, racial justice, systemic racism, and the social gospel. And so I began studying how race impacts the systems of our day. Racism impacts the systems of our day, not just interpersonal relationships, but systems. Uh, and that sent me on a profoundly personal journey. It transformed my soul. It also has changed the scope of my ministry uh, within the walls of Second and without. Um, out of that sabbatical, we planned a few series at Second. Last fall, we did a Wednesday night series called Race in the Rock. And uh, for, a, for the fall semester of our Wednesday nights, we alternated locations between our sanctuary and the auditorium at Arkansas Baptist College uh, and HBCU here in town. And we had speakers from the community talk to us about systemic racism in various fields as it is manifest in our city. Jamar Tisby, the author of The Color of Compromise, was one of our key speakers. Uh, so we talked about how the church had been complicit in systemic racism historically. We also had community leaders, uh, all of whom were African-American, uh, speak to us about uh, racism in the education system, racism in the justice system, uh, racism in city government. And then towards the end of that series, we dreamed a little bit together. Uh, 
all of those sessions were open to the public and we had uh, racially diverse audiences. And so we as a church had a posture of learning, humility, listening in those days. We've also tried to be more intentional about reading uh, black authors, uh, black theologians, uh, black scholars, and opening ourselves up to the wisdom of the black church that um, is alien to many white churches today. Mm. And so in all of those ways, partly personal and many of which are congregational, we've tried to listen to black voices. And to the question about solidarity, um, James Cone uh, in The Cross and the Lynching Tree, he often sa- he, he says that white folks often suffer from a lack of empathic effort. And what he means by that is it's not so much a brain issue. It's not a rational issue. It's just that we, we fail to cross the chasm to feel what the black experience in this country is. And so we as a church have tried to bridge that chasm and to practice some empathic effort uh, towards what it means to be black in Little Rock and beyond. <laughs> You know, you talk about, and you mentioned the term and use the term systemic racism, and a lot of people today are talking about systemic racism. But there are people within the local church, and people who are, are good people are continue to deny. Who want to know better? Want to <laughs> who want to know better? Continue to deny the presence of systemic racism. Because, you know, in, in the documents, you talk about it's not just interpersonal that right. our systems are, you know, are covered and have been established and continue to benefit from white supremacy, as the document said, but you call it systemic racism. Just uh-huh. really quickly for our audience, how did you and the church come to grips that not only is systemic racism a real problem in the United States, but there's things that we can actually do to combat it. Yes. I think this is one of the core challenges of a lot of white churches in our day, because we we are all saying the same word, racism, but we often mean drastically different things when we say that word. And there's a way of defining racism that, in essence, no one would be a racist today, right? Um when we hear the word racist, many people think of the KKK and I'm not that, and I don't see that. And therefore racism doesn't exist. It's, it's, it's easy logic, but it's faulty logic. The the original premise is wrong. Mm -hmm. And because we define it wrongly, we diagnose it wrongly. We also treat it wrongly. Um, Racism is not just interpersonal. It's not just the cognizant attitudes of people it is also uh, baked into the system. It, it's, it is intrinsic to who we have been as a people in this country. I think that's hard to admit because it challenges uh, a lot of nationalistic myths. Uh, some people have to uh, cling a little less tightly uh, to their national idol, and that's a challenge for people. The way that I have tried to say it to people at Second is, even if there was no racist person in Little Rock, racism would still exist, Mm -hmm. which is mind-blowing to many people. And honestly, the first time I heard that out loud or said that to myself, I I sort of chuckled 
but I, I do believe that to be true. True. And therefore, systemic racism will continue to operate. That machine will continue to turn regardless of how nice we are, regardless of how uh, unracist we are, so long as we do nothing and so long as we say nothing. We have to interrupt the system. We have to challenge the system. And we have to be clear about the ways we see systemic racism working in our communities and our culture. Uh, so that's, uh, I think that is a huge challenge for the predominantly white church in this country. Mm-hmm. I'll also sum it up by saying this. If you deny systemic racism, then how then do you answer the question of why there is such a racial disparity in criminal justice, in the wealth gap, in educational gaps, uh, health gaps in this country? Mm-hmm. You, you either turn a blind eye to that which is a lack of empathy again, right? Or you explain it in some sordid, warped way where you blame the victims for their victimization, which is racism. Yeah, all we ever hear and is so they, they've, they've made bad choices. They, they've made bad, made bad choices, yeah. So um, all I know is this. Prisons today are planning their occupation uh their occupancy levels 20 years from now based on third grade reading levels today. Wow. That is saying that the prisons at least recognize that there are systemic factors at work that are predictable and discernible. Mm -hmm. And until we address those, we are not addressing it. Right. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well said. Mm -hmm. Well, and one thing your document does is it does make some great declarations, but you all are also offering some practical ways to advocate for racial justice. Uh-huh. So you talk about confession, repentance, healing of the church's past. What do some of those things mean and why are they important to you? Yeah, those are important to me because I think this work begins with the church. Mm-hmm. Um I would recommend the book White Too Long uh, to our listeners today by Robert Jones, a newly published book. Uh, basically, he says that the white church has done nothing and, in fact, has had an adverse effect on systemic racism in this country. And if you were a white supremacist organization, you would find no better recruiting grounds for members than the parking lots of white churches. I find that to be incredibly disturbing and Mm -hmm. anathema (laughs) upon the white church. So the most redemptive thing you can do when you recognize that truth and that trajectory is to turn around. And so my hope is that second, Before we point our fingers at anybody else in the world, we can name our own church's complicity in the things we've done and left undone, as the confession says, in the things that we have said and the things that have too long gone unsaid. And we can repent. We can confess. We can turn around and go different directions. And we can uh, bear the burden of healing in our culture. None of those words are politicized words. I'm not pulling those words out of the New York Times. I've heard those words from people I trust, like John the Baptist and Jesus. (laughs) And so 
this work springs from the heart of what we believe the gospel to be. Uh, so that's why those words are repetitive and sort of saturate this document is we wanted this to grow out of the core of what we believe the gospel and the way of Jesus to be. And what I really like about the document, uh, Preston, is that you do set the tone in developing this theological foundation or this theological orthodoxy that you're going to be now acting out of. And you use a lot of you know religious faith-based language like repentance, restoration, uh, healing, things that speak church language, which needs to be said. Uh, because the church, as you said, has an important role to play in this because we have a distinct voice. But also what I like about it is that it's got some really practical, tangible ways that people can advocate to bring that theological conviction to the public square. For example, in the document, you talk about the removal of Confederate statues, a re-examination of the Arkansas state flag, and the establishment of a mandatory African-American curriculum in public schools. I mean, why is it important for the church to continue to speak truth in the public square in this particular way? Yes. We often hear the phrase, the devil is in the details. And there is some truth to that. We all know that. We've all experienced that. And I don't have some uh, utopian notion that every person on the planet is going to agree with everything we say in this document. There is, there is some level at which we agree on our higher virtues, but might disagree on how those virtues play out in public policy. I recognize that. But I also believe sometimes the devil is in generalities. And we say in unison, racism is wrong, racism is wrong, racism is wrong, and yet it keeps happening. We see it all around us. I think one of the reasons that happens is we say racism is wrong, and yet we don't get down into the nitty-gritty, the specificity of how racism is working in our day. So out of one side of our mouth, we're saying racism is wrong, but out of the other side of our mouth or the voting booth or public policies, we're doing it. Mm -hmm. And so one of the efforts in this document was to get as specific as we needed to get to il illumine how racism is working. Um, so yes, we do get down into some specific policy asks because we think it's important for people to see how racism functions in our day. Uh, in the week after uh, George Floyd's murder uh, went public, I had several ministers contact me and say, Preston, what do we do? Like, what can we do? And so part of this for me was a personal compunction to show people specifically how racism works and how we might uh, become anti-racist in some very specific ways in our advocacy as a church and as individuals. So Preston, you mentioned George Floyd. The document also calls for justice and policing reform. Mm -hmm. And you all um, are just doing an excellent job demonstrating the support of, the, of goodwill law enforcement. But you also suggest tangible reforms. So what would you say are the most important among those right now? This is one of the sections where I think um, it's more of the big picture of policing than 
any one of the specifics, uh, though I, I don't mean to undermine the specifics, especially after what I just said. Um, for me, I think it is the re realization of our law enforcement officers, but also how we as a community decide we are going to ensure safe communities and just policing. Um, I think we have to realize that with great privilege comes great responsibility. So all that we're after is for a policing that lives up to its name and its creed, that we serve and protect all people. I will be the first to say this as well. Uh, we've all seen unjust policing uh, the last few weeks and months, and that must change, period. However, it's easy to point our fingers at policemen at that place and not recognize, again, all of our complicity in the way that we do policing. Uh, the way policing happens in any given community is not just on the police. Uh, we have the kind of policing we tolerate. We have the kind of policing we encourage. We have the kind of policing we allow. And so I think it is the right, but also the responsibility of all citizens in every community to have a say and uh, a responsibility for their neighbors and the way that we ensure community safety in any given community. Safety is essential for there to be peace, right? Mm -hmm. But when agents of the state become the primary disturbers of the peace, then you have a real, real challenge as a community of how you hold that accountable. That's what we're trying to get at today. Mm -hmm. So, None of us are pointing fingers at just police officers who, uh, you know, at, at great risk daily uh, serve and protect all people. But we are trying to raise consciousness to think about how we do policing at a macro level in our culture today and how we hold accountable those officers who do act unjustly. Mm -hmm. uh, I think that's a question we're all asking, and I think the church uh, should have a say and a significant say in how we form that moving forward. And what I like about where this, this uh, particular issue is positioned in the document is that it is standing beside other calls to action. And one of those calls to action is churching reform, how we right. think and do church, and right. you know, how we have been complicit to white supremacy and systemic racism, civil reform, legislative reform, and policing reform. We're not just pointing out that there are issues within policing. We're recognizing that systemic racism is the common thread and that we need to be doing our very best to address that and to bring healing and restoration uh, to this, this terrible idea that has been practiced for, for so, so long. Now, I'm going to ask you one last question before Autumn gets to our final, final question. And that is mm -hmm. this tension that seems to always exist between what the document identifies is not being colorblind. Because yeah. if I'm told once, I'm told a million times, reminded about MLK's words at the Lincoln Memorial, that I should not be judged by the color of my skin, but the content of my character. Therefore, we should be a 
colorblind society. And I've heard of people saying directly to me, I don't see color. I don't see race. But you're saying the opposite, not opposing what Dr. King said, but in enhancing, building upon what he said. So can you explain to our audience why you think it's so important not to be colorblind in this day and age? Yes. I think colorblindness uh, becomes a hiding place for a lot of white people. Um, and, and some people who have the best of intentions, but the worst of outlooks. For me, colorblindness, first of all, it, it simply is an untruth. The first thing we tend to notice about someone is the color of their face, right? Or the color of their skin. Um, children, science tells us that children see color and recognize color from the earliest of age. And to some degree, when we say to someone, I don't see your race, we're saying, I don't see part of who you are. I don't see part of your, uh, your culture, your traditions, your history. So, uh, first of all, I think colorblindness is based on a lie. Uh, we, we all see color, and it seems to me like God takes great pleasure in a diversity of color. I, I see beauty in that. I, I think we should focus more on colorfulness. But even more pertinent to this discussion, I think an overemphasis on colorblindness, what that allows people to do is not see the racialized discrepancies of our society. Uh, we can turn a blind eye to a history that is thoroughly racialized. Mm -hmm. uh, it, it allows us to turn a blind eye to a constitution that was thoroughly racialized. Um, and again, it's, it's sort of a way of denying systemic racism again. Mm -hmm. If we are a colorblind society, then, then how do you respond to all of these discrepancies, these racialized discrepancies and disparities in our culture? So while I understand the notion of colorblindness, and I can see how some people, well, let's just take MLK as an example since you used him. We've all heard the speech in Washington, I Have a Dream. Uh, I, I hope the day will come when my children will be judged by the content of their character and the color of their skin. But if you read the whole of MLK's ministry, his sermons, his letters, until we are able to talk about justice, racial justice, right. there will never be reconciliation. Even in that comment that he Go made, ahead. Preston, uh, on, the, on the steps of the Lincoln Memorial, he wasn't denying his blackness. He wasn't denying right. his culture. All we, he was suggesting was that people don't judge him for it. <laughs> he wasn't right. suggesting that they don't see his color. He was suggesting, yeah. just don't judge me for it. That's exactly right. I have stopped using the phrase racial reconciliation because of the way I think it sounds in white people's ears. I think it sounds rather cheap, hollow, and kumbaya-ish. have been heavy on the phrase racial justice because I think if we will seek to do justice, then I think there will be real reconciliation. Yeah. And that's not colorblind, that's right. colorful. Amen. Amen. So Preston, before we let you go, <laughs> before we let you go, Adam's got one last question for you. Yeah, so our tagline at Good Faith Media is there's more to tell. 
So in light of everything that we've talked about today and the important work that your church is doing, what is your more to tell? I think the church has more to say about how the way of Jesus that talks about good Samaritans, that talks about peace, that talks about justice. There's more that the church has to say about racial justice than we have been saying. Mm -hmm. And I think the church and even the predominantly white churches of this country can lead the way, have these discussions, engage the work, and live to tell about it, and might even have the integrity of their witness uh, intact after they do so. Mm Wise words, my friend. Well, for those who are interested in reading more about Second Baptists and their advocacy and their stance on racial justice, you can go to the number two, bclr.com, and you can uh, read uh, Preston's blog there and learn more about the church and the good work that they're doing in Little Rock, Arkansas. Preston Clegg, pastor at Second Baptist Church in Little Rock, Arkansas, thank you so much for being a guest today here on Good Faith Weekly. Absolutely. Thanks for having me, and thank you for the work you do. And for those uh, of our audience, appreciate uh, you tuning in this week. And as always, remember to keep living good faith.